Um, <clears throat> so I'm, uh, my name is Matthew Neal. I'm an elder here, and uh, Dan is away on vacation, so I was called up from the minor leagues um, uh, to fill in, pinch hit or something. And uh, so if you're new here today, um, it gets better. <laughs> so... Um, <clears throat> Okay, so I'd like to, um, well, today's uh, sermon is on uh, Exodus 17, so I'm going to go ahead and read through that once. Actually, before I do that, I'm going to pray. That would be smart. Um, <clears throat> Lord Jesus, I, uh, I pray that you would help me to correctly uh, uh, preach your word, um, I pray that your word would uh, bring us in more into uh, union with you, a greater knowledge of you, greater, a, a closer relationship with you, um, and uh, we know that that only happens by the power of your Holy Spirit, so I just pray that your spirit would work in Christ's name, amen. Okay, so we're in Exodus uh, 17, and I'll go ahead and read that. Uh, <clears throat> so Exodus 17, then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, what do you, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water and the people complained against Moses and said, why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb. You shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So jo Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. But when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on each side and, uh, and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. 
So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, the Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. As Dan says, the, the flower fades, right? But the word of the Lord stays with us for, forever. Uh, we're going to actually read from that passage in a little bit here. Okay, so before I get into this kind of a four-point sermon, I guess, um, uh, before I kind of get into this passage, I want to give you a little bit of background uh, about you know, kind of what it means to be in the wilderness and how uh, the book of Exodus and this whole journey out of Egypt and through the wilderness and into the promised land is really a picture, uh, it's kind of a framework for all of Scripture in a sense. It keeps getting repeated in different contexts and points towards something ultimate. So I want to sort of talk just briefly about that. Then I want to explain to you uh, this tattoo that I got. Um, yeah, so this is a little bit embarrassing here. So I, I started, you know, I've got this long beard and like I've got this tattoo and, you know, I find myself wearing sunglasses indoors and I, I mean, clearly I'm going through some midlife crisis or something <laughs> like that. Um, but anyway, this tattoo has, is a memorial for me. My daughter actually got a matching tattoo, so it's kind of a father-daughter thing involving a skull with a snake through it on a bunch of roses. Um, so how <laughs> to sort of explain that to you. Um, so for, for <laughs> yeah, okay. So yeah, I mean, I told you it was minor league, right? Um, okay. Okay, anyway. Um, <clears throat> so uh, just a sort of quick, uh, well, I guess the main example would be the, if you think about the life of Jesus Christ, Right? Um, and particularly as it's laid out in Matthew. I mean, what did Jesus do? Jesus escaped Herod's attempt to kill all the young children, right, in Israel, he, and he went into Egypt and then came out of Egypt, much like Pharaoh's attempt to kill the firstborn children of Israel. Uh, uh, he went out of Egypt, and it says in Matthew 1.15, this is fulfilling a prophecy from Hosea 11.1, of a new exodus. In, in Hosea 11.1, God says that Israel is his son and will come out of Egypt. But we learn in Matthew that what he's talking about there is his son Jesus that would come out of Egypt, and that's a fulfillment of that prophecy. Does that make sense, what I just said there? Okay, so there's a connection there. Um, of course, John the Baptist compared his ministry to making a highway out of the wilderness uh, for Israel. Uh, you can read about that's connected to Isaiah 40. Jesus comes out, what does he do? He passes through the Jordan, much like the Israelites came out of Egypt and passed through the Jordan. He went into the desert and was tempted, the wilderness, for 40 days. Okay, you know, the Bible doesn't do things accidentally, really, here. I mean, the, of course, we know the Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness, in the desert. Uh, connection there. Jesus uh, 
uh, then what does Jesus do? He gives the Sermon on the Mount. What is the Sermon on the Mount about? It's all about uh, fleshing out, expanding the Ten Commandments, is it not? The same law that, uh, that, that uh, Moses uh, preached on Mount Sinai. And, of course, Jesus makes many references to, to Moses, and he expands on that. Um, uh, continuing on, when Jesus feeds the uh, multitude, so when he feeds the, the, the people, um, he, he makes reference to uh, how God, we learned, I think, uh, recently in one of Dan's sermons, God uh, provided manna in the desert, just like Jesus is providing food for his people. Jesus makes an explicit connection there. Am I making sense? Okay. Uh, and of course, Jesus became the Passover lamb to save his people from judgment, which directly goes back to uh, the Passover, the first Passover, where the Israelites were spared from God's judgment. Are you with me? So the whole journey of Christ, and I could go on and on with this as it's laid out, especially in Matthew, is really paralleling the journey of Israel out of slavery in Egypt through the wilderness and hopefully into the promised land. Actually, in Luke 9.31, Jesus describes his coming death. The Greek word is exodus. The Greek word is exodus. So Jesus, when he dies and goes, he's completing that journey. Are you with me? And we follow him, don't we? We are in the wilderness now. We have been brought out of slavery to sin, have we not? Through the work of, only the work of Jesus Christ. We are now journeying in this wilderness, and we will follow Christ and his exodus into the promised land. In Hebrews, it's described as the heavenly country that we wait for. This is not the heavenly country, <laughs> okay? <laughs> It's not. This is the wilderness. This is the wilderness. Um, so this kind of parallel, this structure of Exodus, is really a framework for studying, for, for really understanding also what Christ did and what we're doing right now. Are you with me? Is that making sense? Okay. Um, okay, now what is my <laughs> tattoo? <laughs> so that was the first point, and, and we'll, I'll say more about that. Uh, this, we are on an exodus right now, and we are in the wilderness. Everybody with me on that? We're in the wilderness, and so we can kind of relate to the Israelites in the wilderness. We can draw a lot of parallels and a lot of inspiration and warnings and so forth. Uh, what does my tattoo have to do okay, with, with all this? Okay. Well, the tattoo, first of all, it has a skull. Okay, and my daughter and I really like skulls, but for me... The skull is a memorial that is, is a reminder. We are all dying. We are all dying. Even if we're Christians, of course, we were spiritually dead, were we not? We were all spiritually dead. We were made alive by Christ. But even so, Colossians talk about we have the new, new man, the new creation in us, new woman. And then we also have the old man who is dying. The old man is dying. And, of course, our bodies are dying. Right, and um, <clears throat> and so this is kind of a reminder of you know I think this is this is really important when you think of the gospel. The starting place of the gospel is not all happy and touchy feely, right? The starting point of the gospel is that we were all spiritually dead because of our sin. Everybody with me so far? Um, so that kind of reminds me about that, and. 
but it's not just us, okay? We are surrounded, maybe in our family, with our friends, place where we work, with spiritually dead people. They don't know, a lot of them don't know that they're dead, but they're dead, okay? This is the reality. It's really kind of frightening. And it's important that we remember this because the clock is ticking, right? Praise God that he's so patient. Praise God that we still have an opportunity to share the gospel with our friends and family. It's not over with. But they are dying, and it's important that we remember that. Just a second, I lost my, my phone bugged out there. You know, it's funny, you know, when you... Uh, when we think of evangelism, you know, we often think of, sometimes we think of different strategies, like, like when I'm sharing the gospel with someone, what, what, you know, how could I sort of reason with them, as Paul did with the Athenians, right? We sort of think, uh, you know, maybe there's some reason. You know, and, and in my experience in evangelism is almost everything you come up with, someone's going to disagree with you. Someone's going to not believe that or come up with some counterpoint or something like that. Except for one thing, we're all dying, Nobody I've ever encountered has disputed that fact, right? As Billy Graham said, uh, used to say in his, his sort of, uh, his kind of evangelistic crusade, he said, one out of every one people die. <laughs> I don't think we fully appreciate how profound this is. It's kind of like, um, you know, that, that uh, what's that recent... Uh, Disney movie or something, it was like, we don't talk about Bruno. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like, we don't talk about death. But yet, isn't it the most, I mean, why are we not talking about this? We are all going to die. What does this mean? Is there something after death? What's my purpose? Is it, you, you know, uh, how, how could you possibly not think about this? I mean, you're sitting there with your coworker. Why don't we just sort of, you know, it, it just seems crazy Hey, you know, we're, we're all dying, aren't we? Like, what, what, do, you, what do you plan to do about that, <laughs> you know? I, I mean, seriously, it's, it's, it's just an astonishing fact. And I think we get comfortable. I think we think that our life here in the rich, modern, you know, United States, I think we get comfortable in it. We start thinking of this as our heavenly country in some sense. We, we think we get comfortable and... Uh, but we forget that there's serious spiritual warfare going on, and there's all this death, and people desperately need the gospel, and we so do not feel the weight of that. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Uh, then, of course, um, you know, again, continuing with my tattoo, there's a snake here. Now, the snake, of course... Uh, represents, uh, you know, Satan was depicted as a snake, but of course sin. It's sin that has resulted in this, this death. And I think once I save up some money, I might get another tattoo that has the snake uh, maybe up on a, on, on a cross. As I know we're reading in Numbers in the, um, the Bible reading that we're doing. When we get to Numbers 21, we'll learn about how Moses, you know, the, the snakes bit people and poisoned them for sinning against God, but Moses held up the snake on his staff, and everyone who looked up to the snake 
was, was healed. Okay, and this is, of course, a picture of the gospel. Jesus became sin for us and went up on the cross. Are you with me? That's a, that sort of picture. You'll, you'll, you'll come to that when you, when you get to that. And so uh, I hope to complete the gospel on my other arm at some point, I suppose. Um, then the roses, I'll mention the roses here. Of course, my daughter's middle name is Rose, so that's kind of what I, what I think about there. There's also four roses, the people in my family. But I also think of flowers in general and roses. There's a lot of stuff to say in the Bible about that. I'd like to read something, and this is going to connect with the chapter 17. Just <laughs> bear with me for a minute here. I want to read in Isaiah 35 just a couple of verses that really... Uh, this is all about the wilderness, by the way. Um, just find Isaiah. So in Isaiah uh, 35, now, of course, the, uh, the prophets uh, often used the wilderness to talk about many things. It was often a picture, it was even a picture of how the Assyrians would, would conquer Israel, and that Israel under the Assyrians and then others under the Babylonians, this was a kind of wilderness that they were, were walking in here. Uh, but it says this about the wilderness, and of course this points uh, to the future as well. In, in chapter 35 of Isaiah, it says the wilderness uh, and the wastelands, it's talking about God's people, will be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as, a, as the rose. Okay, so God's going to plant a rose in the desert for us, is kind of what I'm thinking there. Now I know when you're, if you've got the ESV, it's translated crocus, so... I don't know, different flower. I don't know much about flowers, but flowers, okay. So God often uses flowers as a picture of, you know, God bringing life into this desert, into this wilderness that we're in, this place of death, right? God uh, makes flowers in that. Of course, we, have to wor- we also have to remember that he also says the, the flower fades as well. Uh, but the, really, the, Lord of, the, word of the word of the Lord is what brings all this life here. But I want to, in that, in that Isaiah 35 passage, so he talks about uh, how God's going to save his people. He's, gonna, uh, he's going to uh, grow a rose in the desert. But then it says this, and I love this. This is in verse uh, 35, verse 8. A highway shall be there. This is another repeated theme of what God does. God makes, he also talks about this in Isaiah 40. God makes a highway in the wilderness for us. What does it say? A highway shall be there in a road. It shall be called the highway of holiness. The highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. I love that verse. God is in, in the wilderness that we're in. This difficult place that we're in, God has made a highway of righteousness for morons. That's us, by the way. Uh, and it's also, it's, this is what God does for his people. It's amazing that even though we can be faithless, God is always faithful. And he has built this highway for idiots. It's a, a highway of holiness. It's an amazing, amazing picture of what God does. So that's what these roses sort of uh, mean to me. Let me now uh, go to the passage. So I'll turn back to, uh, let's find my place here. 
Oh, I guess I should say one other thing that's kind of dark. Uh, this wilderness is also really uh, often used as a picture of, of eternal judgment for those who do not believe in Jesus Christ. In fact, if you go actually back at the end of, uh, in Isaiah, at the end of uh, chapter 34, 8 through 10, it says, For it is the day of the Lord's uh, vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion, its streams shall be burned to pitch, its dust into brimstone, its land shall become burning pitch, it shall not be quenched night or day, its smoke shall ascend forever, from generation to generation it shall lie waste. That, do you recognize any of those phrases? Okay, smoke shall ascend forever, um, that we learned about in Revelation chapter, chapter 14. Uh, the smoke of the judgment of the unbeliever will ascend forever. That we, we just learned that. that. This is the passage that comes from. Also, the, the, the burning pit shall not be quenched day or night. Does that sound familiar? Again, in Mark, uh, uses that kind of language talking about the unbeliever. So this wasteland, it, there's a highway for us out of this wasteland, right? But only, only for the believers, only those who look up to the snake on the cross, right? Jesus made sin for us. For those who look up, even though we're fools, we get a highway out. That's what I'm talking about here, all right? Now, but this wilderness that we're in now, and again, go, now let's go back to uh, Exodus 17, which is the passage, now that I've kind of given a lot of really weird background. Um, Exodus 17. So the wilderness is, a, is really a scary place. Uh, I mean, it can certainly, as we see here, as we've been reading in Exodus, it's, it's a, it can be a place of want. Jesus certainly experienced that, right? He didn't eat for 40 days in the desert. Uh, and, you know, this, the wilderness is a, can be a place of want. Uh, we've talked about it's really a place of death. It's actually a picture of hell, as we just described. Uh, in fact, everyone of this generation that we're talking about here in, in Exodus died before they got to the promised land, including Moses, right? Um, so this, this wilderness is a difficult place. It's a place where we must rely only on God. It's a place, and it, here's the thing. It's a, replay, it's a place of repeated catastrophic failure for God's people. Okay, if you read the Old Testament in general, but Exodus and in uh, specifically, over and over again, the people fail. In particular, this wilderness is a place of relentless whining. Relentless whining. What does it say here? Uh, the people said, "Why have you brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst?" Right? Uh, Give us water that we may drink. They wanted to stone Moses. And we, we saw something similar before in the last chapter uh, where they cried out for food. You know, why? It would, been, it would have been way better, we learned last week, if we had been in Egypt where we had all this food. You know, again, relentless whining, God blessing them, and more and more whining following, okay? Uh, and this really, uh, really hits home for me uh, because... I just am, I am a relentless whiner. Uh, I, I don't know about you. Actually, I do know about you. You guys are whiners too. 
You guys are total whiners. You know, it's, it's almost like, you know, it's, it's amazing. What's the fundamental sin in Romans, the beginning of Romans? You know, God, we, we worship the creature rather than the creator. Uh, we don't seek his glory. God is never enough for us. He is, of course, enough, but we, we, he's never enough. We always want more. We always want more and more and more. We always question God's plan. Um, and we just, we whine. You know, Tim Keller has that phrase, you know, uh, we, uh, we're more sinful than we ever feared or something, but we're more loved than we ever dared hope or something. <laughs> I'm, I'm messing up the phrase, but it's something like that. Well, I would, I, I, so one version of that phrase would be we, we whine more than we ever <laughs> feared, <laughs> but we are loved more than we ever dared hope. Uh, this is just, a, a, I think, a, a tremendous problem um, that we're always whining, always complaining. Um, all right, let me find this. Sorry, I keep losing my place here. And Moses, of course, threw up his hands at these people. Like, what am I going to do with these people, right? Same thing with Paul. He, if you read 2 Corinthians... He was throwing up his hands like, what do I do with these Corinthians, you know? I mean, he almost gets kind of manic in 2 Corinthians talking about it. You know, uh, people, I swear, you know, sessions throw up their hands. What am I going to do with this congregation? Congregations throw up their hands. What am I going to do with this session? Um, it's, uh, it's amazing, this relentless whining that we have. Now, what does it say here in the passage? Um, so the, what does the Lord do? He says this, I'll read it again. Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and it turned to blood and go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Okay, so this is an astonishing passage. First of all, we know from 1 Corinthians 10.4, Paul says directly about this passage that that rock represented Christ. The cornerstone that we all, the people stumble on. This rock represented Christ. God is identifying himself with this rock. And the rod of judgment strikes it, just as Jesus Christ was struck with God's wrath. Are you with me? And what results from that? Living water is what results from that. Here it was just ordinary, or just water that the people could drink in the desert. But what do we really need in the desert of our hearts? We need, we need living water. Right? And that's what Christ says. Christ identifies himself. He's, he is the living water. Just like he is the manna from heaven. He is the bread of, he is the bread of life. We feed on Christ. And he is the living water. So this is pointing, this is really a picture of the gospel. It's amazing how in the Old Testament, all over the place, it's talking about the gospel. Uh, here's another uh, way it does that. But there's actually something else in this passage that's super crucial, and it might be the most important thing that I want you to remember today. What does it say? The Lord says, 
Behold, I will stand before you on the rock. That's astonishing language there. Because God does not stand before people. People stand before God. Okay? So this is God using astonishing language, humiliating himself in front of people who want a trial. They want a trial. They want a stoning. God is humiliating himself, but then, you know, providing the water. It kind of makes you think back to Genesis 15, right, where God ripped apart the animals in front of Abraham. He was making a promise that his descendants would be as numerous as the sand in the seashore, right? He was promising that to Abraham. Uh, we know from Galatians that that was talking about us. We are children, ultimately, children of Abraham by faith in Christ. We know that from Galatians. So this is a promise of the fulfillment of the gospel to Abraham, and what does God do? He tears apart animals and he walks through it as a sign of the covenant that he's making. And we know, actually, if you read Jeremiah, I won't turn there, but Jeremiah 34, 18, we know that this, in, in the ancient world, what this meant was, let me be torn apart if this, uh, if, if this covenant is not fulfilled. Are you with me? So when God tore apart the animals and walked through in Genesis 15, he was saying, let me be torn apart if this covenant is not true and if the gospel uh, does not happen. And so it's the same thing here. Here he's humiliating himself on the rock, just like Christ humiliated himself on the cross. The God of the universe, a perfect and holy God, humiliating himself in front of people that were whining and accusing him. It's an astonishing, astonishing picture here of what uh, God is doing. Now, in the last uh, bit of this, my last point, I'm going to talk about the Am uh, uh, Amalekites. This is from uh, verse 8 through uh, verse 15 in, in, our, in our chapter 17. So, uh, Amalek, of course, was, I think, the grand, grandson of Esau. And so these were descendants of, uh, from Esau. And uh, a little bit of uh, background here. Uh, in Malachi 1, it states very clearly that the Lord hated Esau and, quote, laid waste to his mountains and his heritage uh, for the jackals of the wilderness. Okay, so this was what God thought of the Amalekites. Um, and it really happened. Um, they were wiped out. So they obviously lose this battle, but it really continues on. Actually, the, the Amalekites, it's kind of a really horrifying story. They get wiped out over the course of the Old Testament. I'm just going to read a few, uh, few verses here. Uh, yeah, so we, this is in Exodus 17, they lose. Um, then in Numbers, they actually defeat Israel at Hormah because Israel had been disobedient. Then Saul attacks them in 1 Samuel but fails to destroy them. Then David in 1 Samuel defeats them and destroys them. Then Hezekiah, later in the Old Testament, finally wiped out all of the Amalekites in the Promised Land, and we're not done yet. The remaining Amalekites were destroyed in Persia, 
uh, as it's described in the book of Esther. Uh, Haman, who persecuted Jews, was, of course, a descendant of them. So over and over again, it keeps coming up, and we get a picture in the Old Testament of a people getting completely wiped out. This is horrifying, isn't it? This is absolutely horrifying. Does this, does this bother you? Because we're going to be reading, you know, well, in the Old Testament, over and over again, we'll read about people that God wanted to completely wipe off the face of the earth. And you were punished if you didn't do, like Saul, if you didn't do the complete job. Are you with me? Does this bother you? I mean, it, it, it kind of should bother you, but I have some bad news for you, okay? God's going to destroy all unbelievers one day. So if you have a problem with this, then you have a problem with what's going to happen when Jesus comes again because he's going to wipe out all unbelievers. It's horrifying, but it's true. Morons like us get a highway out from the wilderness, but uh, simply by putting our faith in Christ, not through any merit of our own. But people who refuse to do that, who won't acknowledge uh, Christ as Savior and Lord, they will be, they will be destroyed. Now, praise God, praise God that we as Christians have been called to respond to hate with love. Thank God we don't have to take up swords and go, like, kill everyone in the city or something like that. You know, thank God we don't. Thank God that, thank, that he's patient, that he gives us time thank, uh, to, you know, uh, to save all of his people. Um, but, you know, this is a picture of what happens to sinful people standing for a holy God, especially those that fight as children. We learned in Revelation uh, those who persecute Christians are especially, uh, especially uh, punished uh, by God. Uh, Deuteronomy 25 says Amalek did not fear God. This is the core thing. Praise God that we were plucked out, right? Pray, even though we were fools. Praise God that we were plucked out. And there is still time for your office mate. There is still uh, time for your friend that doesn't believe, for your parents that don't believe. There's still time for your siblings to be plucked out by his grace. When we read about the Amalekites being slaughtered, that should give you an urgency to bring the gospel to these people who are dying, remember? They're dead. They're spiritually dead. They need the gospel. This should inspire us. We don't, I don't want the people that work at Denison, my friends, I don't want them to suffer the fate of the Amalekites. I don't want my parents to suffer that. Now, a couple of things about uh, more uh, aspects of this passage I'll just touch on here. Obviously, one crucial part of this passage we need to remember is that uh, Moses' hands were raised holding God's rod of judgment, right? And of course, his hands had to be held up. Why? Because Moses was weak. We as humans are weak. We weak. And, it's God, and the staff meant that it was God that was giving the victory. And we need to remember that. We are weak. We cannot gain victory on our own. 
We need to completely rely on God to hold up our arms because we are weak. But God's staff shows that he is powerful. He can do more than we ask or think. He can give us victory over even our enemies. One other thing I want to mention about this. Um, oh, a couple of interesting points to make here. Joshua shows up in this passage. Uh, Joshua's name was Hosea, which means salvation, but he's now called Joshua, which means Yahweh saves, possibly because of this victory here. So his name was salvation, but now it's Yahweh saves because we have this picture of God saving uh, his people, holding up his arms, holding up Moses' arms. I also want to point out something about what happens at the end here. Much like my little tattoo, God is always uh, putting up memorials, okay? He does this all over the place, Ebenezer stones. Here, uh, Moses builds an altar, and it calls its name, the Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is a memorial, so people will remember this, Okay? Now, one uh, little fact about this, the Lord is my banner that was on the altar. When we think of a banner, we think of a flag, don't we? Okay, that is not what this is, okay? The, uh, the word here for banner is the same root word for Moses' staff. And it's the same root word for the staff in numbers that he's going to hold up that has the snake on it for people to look on, Okay. So this is really talking, this is really connecting to all of this. The Lord is our staff. The Lord brings uh, victory. And the Lord brings salvation, doesn't he? And if we look up to, if, again, if we look up to the serpent, the Lord brings salvation. So here we see in this chapter 17, uh, what have we seen? This is one little chapter of the Old Testament, but we see all of the gospel in it, don't we? Okay, we see uh, his mercy and grace at the beginning to the point of humiliating himself before people who are mocking him as he gives them living water. He, he humiliated himself before people who were mocking him and judging him as he was giving them living water. But then in the second part of this passage, what do we see? His judgment completely wipes out those who don't fear him. He does this to show his justice. This is what is required to deal with sin, his blood. And it also, what does it do? It shows us the wages of sin and the horror of what sin must lead to. And it really makes us long, as it's talked about in Romans 9, for the riches of his glory as we see this. Thank God that we have, that I have this highway out of the desert. Thank God that I was plucked out. Even though I'm a fool, I was plucked out. Praise God for that. And I don't want the wages of sin. I don't want this fate. So praise God that we are more sinful than we can imagine, but more loved than we ever dared hope.